This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 184. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you, available in audio for the first time anywhere. It's also where I keep track of my efforts as a writing professional. But first, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 42 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, Kate and her allies launched their rescue plan for Will Karenson, Callie's boyfriend who was taken captive by a sinister death cult. The team drew on a diverse set of clues and resources, including old case files from Captain Montgomery, runner delivery schedules gathered by Evan, maps of city infrastructure compiled by Callie's mentor, Silas, surveillance camera footage, and a computer tracking model developed by Nathan. Using this data and more, the team identified more than a dozen locations where the cult is likely to be operating. For the final touch, Kate prepared a location spell, a notoriously fickle and difficult form of divination designed to target Will himself. Filtered through the array of possibilities identified by the rest of the team, the spell zeroed in on a spot on the lower west side. Nathan quickly called up data on the location, which turned out to be a decommissioned water treatment plant. The site had extensive facilities below ground, as well as connections to the commuter tunnels, the sewers, a retired subway line, and the underground river that runs the length of the valley. All of this means the cult would have lots of ways to move in and out of the complex without being noticed, an essential quality for a secret base. Kate and her team began arming themselves for their rescue mission. As Kate was getting ready to go, Brian and Evan called her over with some disturbing news. Police psychologist Jared Tamlin has been reported missing from the Precinct 9 station house. Suddenly, the fact that Jared appeared in Kate's dream last night makes a lot more sense. That was actually him, trying to warn her that he had been captured by the cult. Kate remembered Jared's words. They think I might be some kind of chosen one, and if I don't prove it to them, they're going to kill me. For Evan and Brian, this news is even more horrifying, because they know something about Jared that even he doesn't know. He has the psionic power to reshape people's souls. Under Jared's influence, people will change on a subconscious level, adjusting their desires and values to align with his. So far, Jared's ability has done relatively little harm, because he doesn't know he has it, and because his telepathy is so weak that he can only affect people at very close range. If he ever understood his power and learned to control it, he could do tremendous harm, even with the best intentions. And if he falls under the influence of the shackled god, a dark entity imprisoned outside the material plane, then things could get much, much worse. Kate and her team now have a second mission. Find Jared and rescue him from the cult 
before they can unlock his terrible power. Little do they know, Jared's third test to become the Chosen One is about to begin. The Lost and the Least A novel of Metamore City Written in red by Chris Lester Chapter 42 The place where the Brotherhood took Jared was more than a kilometer away from the cells, on the far side of the chambers where he had been taken previously. He could still hear the sound of the river beyond one wall, though, so he knew they were not significantly deeper down or closer to the surface than they had been before. The room was circular, with a heavy wooden chair in the center. The chair was bolted to the floor and had heavy leather straps for the arms and legs of the person sitting in it. Candles had been placed in a circle around it, and cultists were busy filling in the space between with a detailed set of spell markings. Adrastia gestured to the chair. Have a seat, doctor. The third test will begin shortly. Jared walked over to the chair, then stopped. He wriggled his wrists, which were still bound behind his back with the zip tie, and raised his eyebrows meaningfully at Adrastia. She gave a short huff of annoyance, then drew a ritual knife from beneath her robes. She came up behind him, pulled on his hands to hold them steady, and slipped the blade of the knife between them to cut the zip tie. I need to get that knife away from her. The thought ran through Jared's mind with sudden, desperate intensity. Behind him, Adrastia sucked in a breath of air. The knife moved, sliced cleanly through the zip tie, and then fell from her fingers, landing in Jared's open hand. He couldn't believe his luck, but there was no time to question it. He tightened his grip on the knife and spun around, shoving the still-stunned Adrastia into the chair. He pinned her down with his weight and held the knife under her throat. Adrastia held very still. Jared tore off the gag with his other hand and shouted, Nobody move! All the cultists in the room stopped moving. They stared at Jared, looking confused and angry and frightened. Adrastia laughed, a low, almost sexual sound. Oh my, you have found your spine, haven't you? Jared glared at her. I've had enough of your games. Still keeping the knife to her throat with one hand, he reached in with the other and pulled that stupid silver mask off of her face. He stopped and stared at her, frowning. I know you, he murmured. She was a beautiful and strikingly feminine woman, with full lips, medium brown skin, short black hair peppered with gray. Her hazel eyes sparkled at him, strangely delighted at his show of force. But Jared couldn't quite put together where he had seen her before. Adrastia's lips curled into a mocking smile. Maybe this will jog your memory. And as he watched, her body changed. The changes were gradual and subtle. There was no radical shift from one state to another, like a person taking off a doppel charm. But her jaw became slightly heavier, her lips a little thinner, her cheekbones a little sharper, her eyebrows a shade thicker. A dozen minor alterations, which took the same face 
and nudged it from clearly feminine to something androgynous. And then, like an image in a camera shifting suddenly into focus, Jared knew her. Captain Shaw, he whispered. Adrastia, Shaw, rather, winked at him. Hello, Doctor. Are you having fun yet? There was a pop from somewhere close, like a small explosion or a rush of compressed air. Jared felt a sharp prick of pain in his stomach, and then his entire body convulsed in sudden agony. He staggered back off of the chair and saw two long, coiling wires leading from his stomach to a yellow plastic gun in Shaw's hand. She'd taken advantage of his distraction to draw a stun gun from beneath her robes. Jared fell to the floor, his nerves screaming, his muscles still twitching uncontrollably. Shaw dropped the gun and rose to her feet. Get him in the fucking chair and strap him down. Now! That was enough to shake the cultists out of their stupor. They grabbed Jared and strapped him into the chair. Jared could do nothing to resist them, or even to protest. Even his tongue didn't seem to be working. Dimly, he was aware of a stream of drool running out of one corner of his mouth. Shaw tied the gag firmly back in place, then stepped back to look at him, her hands on her hips. I've got to hand it to you, Doctor. That was more spirit than I expected from you. I don't know how you did that trick with the knife, but you're not going to get a second chance at it. I hope seeing my face was worth it. She picked up the mask, considered it for a moment. Perhaps it is time to do away with disguises. We'll know soon, won't we? She put the mask away somewhere that Jared didn't see, likely a pocket in her robes. At the moment, he didn't much care about that, being more concerned with regaining control of his body's motor functions. Several more of the Brotherhood cultists soon joined them, and together they made a circle around Jared. Then the cultists lit their candles and began chanting in a language Jared didn't know. One of them brought forward the same evil-looking jar they had spilled his blood into yesterday. Jared didn't know much about magic, but one cultist seemed to be using it as a focus implement, like Katane's dagger or Silverleaf's sickle. The cultist knelt inside the circle of chanters with the jar in front of him. He took it in both hands and raised it over his head, saying more words Jared didn't understand. The sigils on the jar began to glow again. Jared felt an ugly, crawling sensation at the edges of his perception. At first, it was just an uneasy feeling in the pit of his stomach, but as the chanting continued, other symptoms appeared. His tongue seemed to be coated with something bitter and metallic. His ears heard a deep, disquieting thrum with no apparent source. His skin broke out in cold sweats. Some ancient, primitive instinct shouted that he was in danger, that he needed to run, but the straps were cinched tight on his wrists and ankles. There was no way out. The chanting reached a crescendo, and the cultist with the jar came forward to stand over Jared. Then he turned the jar over and emptied its contents on Jared's head. The substance that came out of the jar was black and viscous, like crude oil, but with a smell that reminded him of sickness and decay. It was cold, but it also burned like acid. Jared thrashed and screamed into his gag, trying to fling the foul substance away from him, but it clung to him stubbornly, even as it continued to spread over his body. 
The pain and terror grew, moment by moment. The cultists stood back and watched. Time seemed to stretch, distorted, until concepts like seconds and minutes became meaningless. Once, when he was newly married and trying to fry fish for the first time, Jared had splashed hot oil onto half of his forearm. The burns had been bad enough to send him to the emergency room, but his mind had dissociated from the pain, the shock bringing some small measure of relief. This time, though, he remained horribly aware of every moment of increasing agony. He screamed until something in his throat tore. He sobbed until he could scarcely breathe. He prayed to any gods who might be listening to let him die, or at least fall unconscious. But the pain was infinite and eternal. And then, suddenly, it wasn't. Something inside Jared that he hadn't known was there unfolded itself, like a moth emerging from a cocoon. Jared had no idea what it was, but it seemed to be a part of him, embedded in a spot deep inside him, just below his navel. It reached up along his spine, came out of the crown of his head, and grabbed hold of the foul sludge. Jared gasped, sucking in air around his gag, and for an instant he felt the searing, acid-cold sensation inside himself. Then, an instant later, it was gone. The sludge had vanished completely, and the pain went with it. He felt a moment of churning cold in that deep place inside himself, and then that was gone as well. Jared looked around at the cultists. Their eyes were filled with joy and wonder. Even Shaw looked impressed. The cultist with the jar bent down and looked at Jared closely. His eyes narrowed in concentration. Shaw came up to stand beside him. Well, Sophus, did it work? It did, Mistress Adrastia, Sophus said, as he straightened and turned to face her. His mystic center is awakened. He absorbed the essence completely. You'll want to have a doctor examine him to be certain, but I see no sign of lingering effects. Good. Shaw nodded once in satisfaction. We'll begin the fourth test immediately. Go downstairs and see to the preparations. Do we have enough stored mana to make the attempt? Sophus closed his eyes, apparently doing calculations in his head. Nearly. Two more sheep should suffice. We could use the two others we've been holding. No, Shaw said sharply. We're keeping those for another purpose. Just send out a team and pick up two more. And be quick about it. MCPD has already reported this one missing. I can only keep him hidden for so long. Yes, mistress. Sophus left, taking three more of the cultists with him. Shaw stood in front of Jared and caught his eye. Congratulations, doctor. No potential vessel has made it this far in centuries. All that remains is the final test. We will open a channel between you and the shackled god's prison. If the god judges you worthy, you will be filled with his power, and you will become the vessel in truth. If he finds you lacking... Well, none of this will be your concern any longer. Because he'll kill me, Jared thought. He no longer had any doubts about that. If these maniacs completed their ritual, he would either be dead or a tool for their god's purposes. Not for the first time, Jared desperately wished that his telepathy worked at a distance greater than skin contact. 
The process will take a few hours, Shaw continued. We need to ground you in the local ley line if we're going to open the channel wide enough. She smirked. Don't be alarmed if you feel something strange in that newly awakened mystic center of yours. Just try to get comfortable. She left him then, with only a few silent, hooded cultists for company. They ignored him, focused on drawing the lines for their next incantation. Jared tried again to get himself free, but the restraints would not budge. What do I do now? he wondered. Just wait for this god to show up and hope he likes me? At this point, Jared wasn't sure if that was even a better outcome than death. But Shaw's words had given him one slender thread of hope. They were going to ground him in a ley line. Jared knew almost nothing about how magic worked, but he did know that ley lines were like magical currents running through the world. If Jared was connected to one, that presumably gave him a link to the world outside this room. Maybe someone would sense him calling for help. As plans go, it's not much, he thought, especially since I have no idea what I'm doing. But it was a hell of a lot better than waiting for the Brotherhood to carry out what they were planning. Jared turned his attention inward, to that strange new core of energy he felt inside himself, and started trying to figure out how it worked. The team approached the old water treatment plant like soldiers encircling a target. Callie rode a hundred meters ahead on her swoop, alert for any signs of ambush or traps. If the cult had set a guard around the approaches to their base, Callie would be the one best equipped to escape if a trap were sprung. Behind her came Kate in her police cruiser, with Lizzie riding shotgun. They would take the most direct approach, coming in from due east, where they could provide Callie with immediate support if she came under fire. Meanwhile, Morgan and John would approach the site from a few blocks south, while Michael drove in from the north. Morgan had filled the back of her skimmer with first aid supplies from Silas's base, which would supplement her own doctor's bag in the event of a fight. Or if Will needs medical attention, Kate thought. Or Tamlin, or Silas, or Prophet knows who else they're holding. The various possible scenarios and contingencies swirled through her mind, competing for her attention. She tried to push them all back and focus on the road ahead of her. She glanced over at Lizzie. The leopard woman was staring intently at her phone, the little screen bright in the darkness of the skimmer's cabin. Any news from the others? Kate asked. It took Lizzie a moment to answer. Oh, no, nothing yet. She flipped over to a map application. Miss Linda is still about five minutes out from the site. Kate peered into the darkness ahead. She could just make out the tail lamps of Callie's swoop in the distance. All right, if there's nothing coming in from the team, I'd rather you help me keep an eye out for trouble. We gotta keep our heads in the game here. Lizzie ducked her head slightly in apology. Of course, Lieutenant. She clicked a button on her phone, and the screen shut off. They rode in silence for a time, Lizzie staring fixedly at the road in front of them. Kate glanced aside at her, saw the tension in her body posture. What's up? Kate asked. She didn't think Lizzie was actually angry at being told to put her phone away. She seemed too mature for such a petulant response. 
Then again, she is awfully young. After a moment, Lizzie spoke. Just before he disappeared, Will uploaded some images from his tablet. Miss Linda forwarded them to me, just before we left. She looked down at the blank screen of her phone, ran her thumb absently back and forth across it. One of the photos showed a roster for the Key and Arch Society at Chisholm. That's the front organization for the cult. She looked up at Kate, just for a second, then averted her eyes back to the windshield. Captain Shaw's name was on there, Lieutenant. Shaw was in the society. Kate's stomach clenched. She felt bile rising up in her throat. That might not mean she's in the cult, she said, weakly. She might have just been in the front group. They'd have needed camouflage, right? Normal people who never knew what the club was really for? But the justification sounded flimsy, even to her own ears. Lizzie wasn't buying it either. You know, Shaw, Lizzie said, her voice and expression bleak. They're driven, determined, charismatic. They rose to lead SID at a remarkably young age. If you were looking for future leaders of the Empire to shape to your purposes, what would you do with a person like Shaw? Kate clenched her jaw. Her hands tightened around the control yoke. Damn it. Tears of bitter hurt and betrayal threatened to cloud her vision. She blinked them back angrily, willing them not to fall. If it's any consolation, Lizzie offered. I believed in the captain, too. Her ears flattened back against her skull. Which makes this the second time I was taken in by a member of this cult. She sounded disgusted with herself. Yeah, well, it seems like they've fooled a lot of people, Kate said. At least now we're in a position to actually shut them down. Shaw's going to answer for her part in this, whatever part that was. Lizzie took a slow, deep breath, straightened her spine, and nodded once, sharply. Yes, they will. A moment later, Lizzie's phone chimed. She looked down at the screen. Miss Linda is on sight. No sign of hostels on the surface. Good, Kate said. Tell her to find a defensible position and prepare to lay covering fire. We're coming in fast. And that's the end of Chapter 42. Come back next time, when Kate and her team arrive at the old treatment plant, and Jared faces his fourth and final test. Sylvia Plath said, Everything in life is writable about, if you have the outgoing guts to do it, and the imagination to improvise. The worst enemy to creativity is self-doubt. So let's all have a little faith in ourselves as we continue on the writer's journey. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 3,644 words this week, over the course of five hours, for an average writing speed of 729 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 182 days without breaking my chain. Looking back at the month of March, I wrote a total of 24,697 words in 24 days, averaging 1,029 words per day. That's my sixth highest word count since I started this podcast in May of 2015. 
I spent 32 hours writing last month. Compared to February, my word count increased by 11%, and my writing time increased by 8%. I also met my goal of writing on at least 24 days in the month, for the third time in a row. This week I continued working on my Kevin story, All the World of Fire. The story is shaping up to have an interesting structure. Rather than a tight chronology where event A leads to event B leads to event C, it's unfolding in a series of interconnected vignettes spread out over several weeks. I realize that it isn't necessary to this story to describe every moment of Kevin's life as he's dealing with this problem, which revolves around an orphaned Psy who is taken in by Kevin and his husband. Instead, the individual scenes are revealing sort of an emotional palette for the story, a set of recurring themes and ideas and feelings that show how these characters are changing each other's lives. It's an unusual writing experience for me, and I don't know if it's going to work like this all the way through the story, or if a more linear plot is eventually going to reveal itself. For now, though, I'm having fun with it. The story is now in Chapter 6, and the manuscript is around 13,000 words. Writing this story has had an unexpected benefit as well. Kevin is the Metamorian equivalent of a Western Buddhist, and in order to portray his mindset and worldview accurately, I've spent the last couple of weeks doing extensive research on Buddhist thought and philosophy. In the process, I've realized that the Buddha anticipated a lot of things about the brain and consciousness that have since been confirmed by modern cognitive science. Not only that, but the practices that Buddhism advocates seem to be remarkably effective in managing the problems with our thinking that cognitive science has identified. I'm recognizing a lot of overlap between these practices and the exercises I've received from my therapist for managing anger and anxiety. And the deeper I get into writing this story, the more I find my own perspectives changing in my daily life. It's almost funny. I got into this research in order to make my story better, but in the process, I think it might be making me a better human being. Over on the Patreon campaign, we have a new patron this month. Say hello to Shay. I also have a new piece of bonus art for you. This is Carol Foote's fifth image for To Walk in Shadow, and it shows Ball and Tara performing the binding incantation in Deep Shadow. I love the feel of this piece, and I hope you will too. It's visible to all of my patrons, and there's a preview on the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group. Remember, if you like my stories and you want to help me keep making them, becoming a patron is the single best thing you can do to support me. Roughly 91% of everything you pledge goes directly to me. That's a better rate of return than on any other revenue stream I have as an author. Just go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester, take a look at the reward levels, and make a pledge today. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. 
If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.